We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard. Have you seen the video of the guy drinking his beer through a straw made from his hot dog wiener? Ooh. Well, now you don't have to. You're Ooh. welcome. Thank Here's you. Here's Scott Thompson. Have you seen that? It was making the rounds at our uh, dinner table last night. Do you mind? I'm trying to eat. Don't want to see somebody playing with their hot dog. and <sighs> See, now you're going to go look. You're going to go look for it. You can't help yourself. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML and Hamilton 980 CFPL in London. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Jump into the show. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900 CHML.com. Another beauty day in the hammer uh, halfway through. And, uh, you know, kind of an odd news day today. Uh, lots of weird stuff going on uh, as usual and as we're in the dog days of summer. Uh, have you been following the story uh, in regard to the the stolen painting at the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa uh, of Winston Churchill. Uh, And basically, in in case you don't know what happened, um, uh, the portrait of him, very famous, actually made uh, the British notes. It's the image they use, Canadian photographer uh, taking that famous uh, or infamous picture of Churchill. The reason he's got the scowl on his face is we find out now he's had the cigar yanked out of his mouth. Uh, Anyway, uh, someone had a replica, put it up, and (laughs) framed the whole thing, and nobody noticed it wasn't the original one. Uh, Fascinating story, and they say, they will find the painting and why not what are you gonna who, who's gonna buy that now uh but a fascinating story uh, nonetheless coming out of the night uh the nation's uh capital uh also at the uh six month uh, uh six month point of the ukrainian uh war and the invasion of russia or so the the russian invasion of ukraine we thought would maybe happen uh for six days at the most now we're heading into uh the six month period and their independence day much more subdued version of that uh as a result of uh the ongoing invasion of russia and uh obviously we'll take a look at where that is at this point in time uh, also uh, interesting news coming out of japan who you might remember uh many i guess about 10 years ago now a nuclear accident that basically allowed them or made them shut down their uh, uh, complete uh, nuclear industry for a period of time and then stop any further development. Uh, There are still uh, idling plants there that aren't doing anything. Now Japan talking about how it's going to fire those back up with new safety standards uh, as they face the energy crisis. And oddly enough, Germany shut it all of its down after seeing what Japan went through. Uh, now Japan looking at its nuclear option as well. And uh, also, uh, one of the uh, uh, stories that uh, we've been watching for a while, and certainly in a post-pandemic world, uh, the four-day work week. There's a UK study going on. It's been going on worldwide, but based out of the UK. It's halfway through, and it's netting positive results for people that are working four days a week, uh, and in some cases being more productive than when they were working uh, five. And no loss of productivity. So fascinating, and I'm sure all eyes will be on that as that study continues. Uh, also, ongoing issues with the Canadian healthcare system, and people want answers. Uh, the premiers meeting together, trying to come up with some sort of plan. Uh, the prime minister, as we've said many times, pretty much vacant from this discussion, other than the appointment of uh, a minister to oversee nursing uh, yesterday. Um, But uh, fascinating to hear NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, speaking out uh, against Justin Trudeau and chastising him to to get into fixing the health care system. Here's what he had to say. One specific reason, one concrete reason, is because the federal government hasn't stepped up and done its part. Premiers are starving our system of funding that that it needs. Doug Ford is doing that here in Ontario and other provinces as well. But the prime minister has a responsibility to deal with this national crisis and has been absent. The premiers have asked to meet with the prime minister and he has refused to meet. There have been demands to sit down and talk about what we can do for the future of healthcare in Canada. The prime minister has been absent. 
All right, that's uh, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talking uh, about the Prime Minister being pretty much vacant when it comes to, uh, we've said, discussions on energy, and now uh, obviously in regard to fixing the health care system. Uh, it's bizarre that I find the NDP leader uh, chastising both the provinces and the feds for this, as it's the provinces that are coming together, um, uh, you know, started way back during the pandemic uh, with NDP Premier Horgan, and now uh, uh, Premier uh, Ford has stepped up and, and also tried to get uh, premiers together to talk on this as well. So we're sort of getting it from both ends uh, of the country, and I found it odd that the NDP leader was uh, not only screaming, taking the opportunity to scream at Justin Trudeau, who, by the way, if there's anyone that can change Justin Trudeau's mind, it's Jagmeet Singh, since it is he and the NDP that are propping up this government and allowing it to be really uh, non-committal or, or uninvolved with any of this stuff that is going on uh, because the NDP and the Liberals signed that secret deal way back when. So to see Jagmeet Singh or hear Jagmeet Singh coming out now and saying he demands the Prime Minister do this and do that and do whatever, well, if there's anybody that can get the Prime Minister's attention, it would be him since it is Jagmeet Singh and the NDP that are propping up this government in the first place. Uh, so once again, when the NDP signed the deal with the Liberals to give them uh, carte blanche on what they do and basically check out for the next three years, uh, that pretty much give you know, <laughs> what sort of privilege does that give to the NDP? What does the NDP get of, out of any of this? And many were asking that question way back when. So at the end of the day, uh, Jagmeet Singh can scream up and down, uh, scream and, and jump up and down all he wants. At the end of the day, for him to be standing on the steps of media or trying to get his message across that he's 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 putting pressure on the prime minister. Well, if there's anybody closer to the prime minister at this point, it would be he and his party who are propping them up. So again, if uh, the leader of the uh, NDP really wants to make a difference, stop grandstanding in the media and get talking to the prime minister of all of this or uh, bring down the government. It's as simple as that. We're talking about the fall. I know, I know. Well, when you think about it, it uh, is August 24th. Uh, you know, the back to school ads, all that stuff. And obviously coming off of a global pandemic or learning to live with it, whatever term you want to use. Uh, so as we head back to school, obviously mandates in Ontario uh, classrooms uh, were dropped uh, a while ago. I don't believe there is a jurisdiction across the country where in the public schools it is mandated uh, and is mandatory. Uh, we're starting to hear a different story coming from some of the universities across the country. Uh, Western uh, in London obviously has mandated COVID-19 booster shots uh, for its students and masking at their campuses, probably uh, the most um, uh, intense of all of the universities at this point, it appears. Uh, the Canadian press uh, uh, surveyed 83 universities across the country. 14 of them had some sort of masking uh, conditions in a classroom of sort and then varied from there. Uh, Waterloo, for example, no masking mandate but is encouraging it and, and stresses that it's a, a mask-friendly uh, uh, campus. Laurier also uh, masking in certain classroom settings, other areas uh, not needed. So um, obviously it creates uh, a message that is kind of mixed considering where we are across the country, where we are uh, across the province and even uh, around the world. So um, what are we to take from this when we have various institutions in various parts of the country and really you know, the spread is no different or no more severe in any other parts of the country other than there's the ongoing hospital situations, which uh, we've been trying to cope for, uh, with not only uh, during this pandemic, but before as well. So is it confusing? Let's bring in Thomas Tenkay, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. What are you to take from this, Tom? Uh, is and you know we've talked about this for the last two and a half years. Mixed messaging is that what we're getting here? Well, there's definitely a, a range in uh, approaches from the different universities. So my my, my university is uh, they're using the term they've paused the vaccine and mask mandates. Uh, 
saying that they might bring one or both back in at some point, um, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, others are in the middle saying, you know, mask mandate in, in, in for classrooms. And then, then you have Western as, as really the most restrictive with both a vaccine and a mask mandate. And, and I think for them, what's interesting is that they've also uh, indicated that it's the, it's the three dose or the, the two doses plus the booster that they're requiring. And, uh, you know, that I think that the booster aspect is is what is potentially, uh, you know, complicating for, for students because we know that, uh, say, international students coming into the country uh, don't require the booster. They, they, you know, they to meet the federal requirements, it's still just the two doses. And we also know that, you know, across Ontario, it's around 62% of uh, eligible adults that have the booster. So, so it's really that, I think that booster aspect um, that is potentially complicating, but, you know, on the flip side, Western are saying that they, they have an on-campus uh, vaccine clinic that, that's going to have extended hours. So, so it's really driving, driving students to, to get that booster if they, if they want to be in, be in class in the fall. And we should point out that none of this is really set in stone. None of these policies are set in stone. Pretty much all the universities have said, you know, it's all subject to change depending upon what the situation is. Uh, do you think, Thomas, they'll be able to enforce this because there's no federal support, there's no provincial support for for any of this? The mandate, uh, the mandatory, uh, the mandates have been dropped pretty much. So, um, you know, will they have much support? Will be will it be difficult to enforce this? Yeah, well, I, I suppose if you think about a university as a workplace setting, uh, you know, workplaces are able to implement, uh, you know, restrictions uh, and from a health perspective when they believe it's appropriate for both, uh, you know, their employees and uh, and clients. Uh, and so, so if you take take it that from that perspective, uh, you know, they're, they're they're within their right to do it. Uh, you know, how how to. Uh, you know, sort of enforce it is is a bit more complicated. But but from what I read, they they're saying that uh, students will have to uh, you know, uh, upload their their uh, vaccination status to a website by a, by a certain date, and if they don't do that, they'll be uh, you know removed out of class. So so I suppose they're 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 playing pretty hardball about this. Are you surprised there isn't a more uniform approach to this, Tom? I mean, you know, obviously at one point it was different in all parts of the country, uh, but are you are you are you surprised they that the universities haven't kind of got together on this? And maybe they have, who knows? And and then just all decided to go in different directions, or some in the same, what have you? Are, are you surprised this isn't more universal? Yeah, I, I am uh, interested why why that there is this range. Uh, like from my perspective, the you know a mask mask mandate for in class is probably the, the a good middle ground uh, because you know if you if we look at vaccinations, I mean we know that you know it it you know having the booster is is uh, important to stop you getting really sick, but it's still not going to stop you getting sick. Uh, you know it won't stop at all you getting sick, but and it won't stop you. Transmitting the infection, so so from that perspective, uh, you know it has a role, but it, it but its role in in from a transmission perspective is is not as great as as say masking and the other measures that that a university could implement. So so I think if you if you think about it, how do you stop the transmission? Then then I would sort of put masking up there with uh, you know ventilation increased ventilation standards and and uh, and and those sorts of things uh, versus Versus vaccination, given given where where you know the status of particularly of the of the booster booster is for the for the general population. You talked about how uh, Western has obviously stepped up its vaccination uh, outlets and such, and, and allowing more opportunity for students to become vaccinated at the campus, which is obviously a great idea. Do you think this is about driving boosters or about protection? Yeah, I, I think I think it's you know what what I'd say it's about. Pre- protect it like individual protection versus say community protection from from the perspective that it's you know obviously from a public health perspective we really want to encourage people to to uh, get their booster and because of of the additional protection that it provides in regard to uh the 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 level of illness that they might get if if they become infected so so from that perspective it's it's that sort of balancing sort of individual protection versus the protection within that 
say your workplace uh, for all members of the workplace, but it, but in some ways it, it's sort of it's an overlap once you're talking about a about a university setting and the university uh, community. I've uh, only got a few seconds left. Uh, Want to make any sort of prediction of what we may see in regard to this pandemic uh, in the fall? Uh, well, you know, at this stage, the numbers are, and the various metrics are, are sort of reasonably stable. Some are going down a little bit. So, so uh, you know, I, I would say that we're probably in, in, a, in a holding pattern for the moment. But, uh, yeah, who knows? It, it can be, a, 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 you know, a changing, changing thing, you know, day by day. So let's, hopefully uh, things are getting better. Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor of School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about back to class at the universities across the country and some inconsistent messages uh, in regard to mandatory masking and vaccination. Uh, Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Don't know if you know the story about uh, Theodore Two or Theodore Tugboat, uh, which was basically, uh, this all started in, in Nova Scotia. It was part of a, uh, a production company and a TV series. And then the boat sort of took on different roles from time to time and eventually made its way uh, to Hamilton and is uh, is situated in Hamilton Harbor. Well, now uh, you can actually stay aboard Theodore Tugboat because Airbnb is here. Uh, what would you want to stay at an Airbnb that has this much Canadian history? That's what's happening with Theodore Tugboat. Uh, Matt McN- uh, Mac McNama is with us, Senior Communications Manager at Airbnb and is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. So when did this become part of uh, the Airbnb portfolio? How did this all come about? Well, you know, we're really excited about it. So um, this is part of a, a new feature on Airbnb called Categories, uh, which allows um, people who are booking on Airbnb to search by the category they like. It could be anything from treehouses to yurts to cabins. And one of those categories is OMG, the OMG category. It's those jaw-dropping um, uh, listings huh. that you find in Airbnb that just make you go, wow. Uh, and we wanted to create one of those in Canada. And we thought, well, Theodore Two's this red-capped, smiling tugboat in Hamilton, Ontario. Why not Why not see if that could be something we can do? And so we've cu- curated this stay. And uh, now we're excited for people um, to come on board, whether they're from Hamilton or whether they're around Canada or even in the U.S. or around the world. If they're a Theodore Two fan or a Theodore Tugboat fan, they can come stay on uh, Theodore Two. So tell us about how you would describe this boat, how, you know, what people, uh, people that go on to Airbnb, what they would be, what you would be describing here. How do you describe Theodore Tugboat? Well, firstly, he's the friendliest tugboat in Canada. We all know that. So, uh, you know, he's, he's notorious in Hamilton um, and he's filled with a lot of nostalgia, uh, not just with Hamilton, but also with uh, with Halifax and Canada in general. So when you walk on board Theodore, you're going to be hit with that that Canadiana, that sense of history. You're gonna, you know, in the kitchen, there's this giant um, plaque, which is coordinates of, of him in Halifax and coordinates of him in, 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 uh, in uh, uh, Hamilton Harbor. And, you know, we're so excited for this to be part of Airbnb. You know, if you go to the master bedroom, you're gonna, the master bedroom has this, this, this or structure as the headboard. It's incredible. Um, and so, you know, this whole experience is going to be something that's very unique to Theodore. Uh, and we're really excited that people get the chance to do it. And uh, bookings open on August 29th. Uh, it's first come, first serve. Uh, they open at noon. And lucky guests are going to get a chance to spend it on a, t- on, on a tugboat. So uh, how many would be on at one time? Like what would be considered, uh, what would you do for an overnight stay? For example. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be up for up to five people uh, for two one-night stays happening uh, September 10th and September 11th. Uh, and so the experience essentially is just like you would any Airbnb, you check in to your listing, in this case, Theater Tow, uh, at three o'clock. Uh, you're going to get a tour of the boat and all the all the experience that's on the board there. And then you're going to get a tour of Hamilton Harbor uh, with the crew of Theater Tow. <laughs> oh, that's a really great fun. idea. Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Matt. So, uh, yeah. so you not only do you get to stay uh, overnight on Theodore Tugboat, you actually get a tour of the harbor in it. On it, you do, and it doesn't stop there. So, you know, one thing at Airbnb is we're really excited to get back to communities and showcase the communities that that these listings are in. Uh, Hamilton has an incredible culinary scene. So, so the guests are going to be whisked off to. 
uh, night in Hamilton and enjoy some food uh, and some wine, hopefully, if they want. Uh, and then from there, they're going to come back to the boat. And we've set up a projector on the back of the boat uh, so they can watch a movie under the stars on the deck in Hamilton Harbor. What a great idea. So who would who would who would be? Well, at first, it hasn't uh, obviously rented out yet. But who would this be targeted to? Or, or is the sky the limit here? Who, who would want to do this? The sky's the limit. Anyone over 13 is allowed to be on board. Uh, you have to be over 18 to book. Uh, but yeah, right. you're welcome to go with your friends. You're welcome to, for it to be a family. Uh, Theodore has so many fans. And I think one thing that I, you know, along this process, we learned is just how many fans theater has all around the world, not just in Hamilton, not just in Halifax, but gosh, everywhere. He's, he's famous. And so whether you're a Theodore fan or you're a boat fan, uh, or you just like the Maritimes and, and all things nautical, this is the state for you. All right. So if you're interested in booking a night aboard a Theodore tugboat, what do you do, Matt? So you go to Theodore, so airbnb.com slash Theodore Tugboat. Uh, it's, you can see the listing now. Of course, it's not going to open until the 29th. Important to know that the that the booking for air for the uh, Theodore Tugboat is only $22. Um, and the reason for that is, number one, we want to make sure that any um, experience like this is affordable for anyone who wants to book it. And number two, Theodore is turning 22 this year. Uh, it's <laughs> Halifax in, in the year 2000. So it's a little bit of a nod to him while also keeping the... Uh, keeping this reasonably priced for everyone else. All right. Airbnb has added uh, part of the uh, OMG category, Theodore Tugboat. Mac, uh, Matt Magna, uh, Mac, uh, Nama has Mac. Why can I say this? Matt <laughs> Nama. There you go. Senior communications manager at Airbnb. Good luck with this, Matt. What a great idea. Thanks for the time. Thanks so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's talk about something we haven't talked in a long time, and that's the Canadian cannabis industry, specifically what's been going on in Ontario. Bring in Michael Armstrong, PhD Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, interesting to uh, get your take on where we are right now. Obviously, the news story today is uh, uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce looking for uh, the monopoly to be disbanded. I guess now uh, retailers have to purchase their product, much like, I guess, alcohol with the LCBO. You have to do it through the Ontario Cannabis Store. Uh, and with the recent situation with their um, uh, online services going down, this has come up again, that this should be broken up. Is this not exact a mirror image of what the LCBO is, but for cannabis? Uh, well, it actually started out as a mirror image. And the, what we have now for OCS is, is almost like an accident of history and policy. So uh, the Liberal government under wind, so going back uh, two elections, uh, created the OCS with the idea it was going to be exactly a parallel of the LCPO. They would be uh, the wholesaler and the retailer. So we'd have all these OCS stores across the province. Uh, but then the 2018 election came along, uh, the Ford uh, government uh, came into power, and they're a little more right wing, a little more pro business. And they said, well, we don't really want to be. Uh, uh, running a chain of retail stores. We haven't actually set any up yet. So let's give the retail stores to private businesses. Oh, but we have this OCS thing. Uh, they've got a warehouse. Yeah, okay, let's let them be the, re the wholesaler and run online uh, retailing. So it, it was kind of a inherited by them, and then they adapted it to their own policy. Um, so now we have the OCS is the mirror image of the LCBO for wholesale, uh, but then they support all these independent uh, businesses as the retailers. And those stores uh, capture the vast majority of uh, legal retailing. Only about 4% of sales now go through the OCS website. So the fact that the OCS distribution system went down for several days uh, because of the uh, they outsourced it to a contractor um, and is slowly, but not yet, getting back up to normal. Uh, that's caused a lot of problems for all these independent retailers. So uh, what is the chance of uh, government getting involved in this and then, then not taking control of it? Because we look at the, you know, the profits that the LCBO makes, and you can certainly see why the Wynn government did a mirror image of that for this, and then certainly the policy we're seeing now. But is it asking a lot for them to, for any government to back away from this? 
Um, yeah, that's a good, good question, my political science colleagues. But yeah, I think that you know the ne- default temptation is, hey, we're this is giving us uh, revenue, we want to keep it. Uh, but on the other hand, the conservative government, uh, they w- just won re-election. Uh, they still are kind of a pro-business, uh, pseudo-populist, whatever you want to call them, uh, orientation. So their their default uh, policy approach, if you say, we, you know, why is government should not be involved in business, uh, let business do business. So, uh, you know, if this was more of a liberal government, NDP government, then no. But since this one is conservative, yeah, it, it could kind of go either way. Um, now, of course, they, they have some options. So, yeah, they could take the drastic approach of saying, uh, let's disband the OCS, let's just get out of the business completely. Uh, and that's what actually what Saskatchewan does. Saskatchewan doesn't really have a cannabis agency. Uh, they regulate it. They, they issue licenses to retailers. They collect their excise taxes but they let the businesses, the retailers just do deal directly with producers. So does one gener- does one system generate more revenue for the province than the other? Well, that it depends on what you look at and it depends more on what the government wants to generate for revenue. There, there's lots of ways to do it. Hmm. Um, so the government gets uh, excise tax. Every time a producer delivers a product to a wholesaler, the government collects an excise tax, and that's true across all the provinces. Um, it's just a question of who's collecting that tax uh, for the government. Uh, but then, if you, the government also controls the wholesaler, uh, the wholesaler will add a markup. Now, I haven't checked the financial statements lately, but I believe OCS, the wholesale markup is 20 something, like 25%, 22%, something like that. Um, so, that is that mostly is supposed to go to pay the, the operating costs of the OCS, but some of it's going to turn into a profit. Uh, you know, if you think about the OCS as a business, um, whatever's left over is a profit, just like the LCBO generates a profit from uh, running alcohol sales. So ultimately, uh, so the Michael- could get its revenue. If it wants revenue, it can get revenue out of any system. Or any way. Um, so what's best ultimately for the customer, Michael? <laughs> well, um, What's best, yeah, for the customer, also for the retailer, um, might actually be to go with kind of a middle ground. So right now we have the OCS as monopoly. They're the only source. The other extreme, which is to shut it down and go this, like Saskatchewan, but you could go with the middle ground and say, well, you know, there are retailers, you know, except when, except when OCS is having problems. A lot of the independent stores actually like having OCS because it's like one-stop shopping for them. Mm-hmm. They don't have to deal with a whole bunch of producers. Uh, you know, if you have a little store in Hamilton, a little store in Niagara Falls, uh, sorry, um, yeah, Niagara Falls, uh, you just have to go CS and get the whole selection, all the different kinds of products from all kinds of producers. If that didn't exist, then your little independent stores now having to deal with a whole bunch of big producers who, and the whole big, which is a lot more work, and the big producers don't really want to ship truckloads. You know, they want to ship truckloads. They want to ship individual packages right, to individual right. stores. So you could keep the OCS as the supplier for any the, any retailers that want to deal, which would be mostly the independents, but then allow some competition and say, okay, you don't have to go through OCS. Uh, and that would particularly appeal to the larger chains that we're starting to see develop, uh, where you have one company owning multiple uh, cannabis stores. Because once you start to get you know, 20, 30 stores, um, you don't necessarily need to have OCS doing that function for them. You can set up your own distribution center and in fact, you at some point you probably want to, uh, because then you get more control of the product selection. You can start to negotiate with producers and get something maybe exclusive. Uh, you also get uh, away from the OCS overhead. Uh, it's not you know it's not worth it for a single store to set up a distribution center, but if you've got thirty or fifty or you know mm. we're allowed up to seventy five in Ontario, yeah, uh, you could probably run your own distribution center for less. Uh, than paying the OCS markup on, you know, 50 stores worth of sales. Michael Armstrong with his PhD associate professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, the cannabis industry, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, saying it's time to end the monopoly. Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. Happy to speak. 
Ukraine is marking its Independence Day and also uh, the anniversary, if you want to call it that, of uh, the six-month war after the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, way back when. Many thought that this would only go six days, if that, let alone six months, as uh, Ukraine and uh, its citizens have stood up to Russia and 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 fought with uh, incredible uh, determination to keep what is theirs. Uh, where are we at this point? Uh, Russia ruling out peace earlier on this week. Uh, how do you how do you look at this six month period and this Independence Day? Let's bring in Roger Hilton, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and defense fellow at GlobeSec, an international think tank banks, uh, based in Slovakia. He's also in Kiev back in May and with us now. Roger, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Hello. Bonjour and ahoy. It's a pleasure to be here. So what was it like for you, Roger, back in May in Kiev? Give us a bit of a description. What what stands out for you? Well, I think no matter what books you've read or, you know, any lessons that you've heard from anybody, it doesn't really prepare you when you go. Uh, we left from Bratislava, drove eight hours to the Polish border, where there was a huge amount of activity at the train station, humanitarian material going in, a lot of military work. Uh, and then we queued up with the, the rest of the Ukrainians on the way over. Uh, the whole journey itself was about 14 hours from the border from Ukraine, excuse me, from Poland to Ukraine. But for all of the listeners out there, I just really want to stress, nothing really prepares you for the first air siren you hear. Uh, we crossed the border. We had our security detail join us as we were with some European parliamentarians. And then the train uh, was was stranded or, for security reasons, uh, left in Lviv uh, for about two hours. And I'm just saying it's, it's, it's a very unique feeling to hear the air sirens. And you think back, is this going to happen? Uh, what does the future hold? So a very, very sobering experience, but one that I'm very happy I was able to take place with Globesec. And obviously, this is still going on uh, six months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let me ask you this question. How is Russia viewing this time period and this Independence Day? I think in general, it's it's pretty embarrassing across the board from Russia what's going on. The idea that this was supposed to be a three day war, and as you said in your inter, you know, has been six uh, has been six months. It's both material losses that they've had to suffer and the rising fatalities. But Scott, for me, what really stands out is the psychological strike that Ukraine has been inflicting on uh, on Moscow. Right now, in the main street in Kiev, it's littered with you know captured equipment. Uh, but the sights of having Russian tourists running in panic the last couple of weeks from Crimea is really as devastating as any physical attack that Ukraine has given uh, to Russia. And I think more importantly, it's put President Putin in a real box. Uh, he's already quite paranoid to begin with, but I think there's no really, there's no easy way out for him. And I think both sides are really digging in for a long haul on this. Yet uh, Russia has ruled out last week uh, any sort of peace deal. Why? Well, I think in the regards to the statement made by Gennady Gatilov, Russia's permanent representative to the UN, I think it's a bit of signaling to the West so that they don't prematurely declare victory and to also demonstrate mm. that Russia is digging in their heels and that they can still cause a lot of damage. I think from my perspective, there's every indication that this conflict will endure for a considerably long period, maybe like Korea. So whether we're here in Canada or when I go back to Slovakia to work, it's something that we need to be prepared for that it puts President Putin's regime at risk if he were to prematurely exit. And it also sends a sign of weakness within the Silvaliki, the power structure, that maybe he's not up to the task anymore. So he's really all in on having to continue this war and have a major prize to present to uh, Russian people. Surprised we haven't seen more attacks on this Independence Day? Well, I mean, you know, he's a, he, they, there's a lot of bluster, but not a lot of bite afterwards. I mean, even, you know, if you go way before Independence Day with the decision by Sweden and Finland to, to join NATO, said there's going to be big consequences. And of course, nothing happened. So here, it's also a question that the Russians need to start strategically rationing the material that they have. Sanctions are really biting. They're really, really getting desperate in terms of the recruitment. So just to sort of send missiles and to strike fear into Kiev on its Independence Day strict for intimidation, I don't think it sits well with the Russian military doctrine that actually needs to use what they have strategically to accomplish gains on the battlefield. Yet Russian citizens still supporting Putin. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it goes without saying that I think 
for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, propaganda, RT, the majority of the Russian population is is supporting it. But of course, the recent assassination of Alexander Dugin's daughter that was claimed by the National Republican Army is changing the guard about it. But as I mentioned earlier, Scott, I think what's most telling is that the war is now very much creeping into Russia and it's already there. Car explosion in Moscow, Russell uh, missile strikes in Crimea on high-end tourist spots. The veneer of confidence that this is making Russia safer is is vanished. So I think over time, the longer this goes in, the harsher the economic sanction goes. They might not be publicly going out against Putin because of the because of the chances of prison. But I think long term, this is not a sustainable position politically for the Kremlin to to take. You spoke earlier of Crimea and Russians leaving Crimea. Expand on that. Well, for everybody, uh, in, since 2014, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula and it mm-hmm. shot President Putin's ratings up. But since then, uh, the Ukrainian military has really undertaken some daring attacks, hitting ammo depots, uh, hitting the head of the Black Sea Fleet, and more importantly, sort of striking fear into civilians that they're not safe on the peninsula. In reaction to this, uh, the Russian military has been taking countermeasures to protect the Kerch Strait Bridge, which is a multi-billion dollar project connecting Crimea to the mainland. And it goes without saying that even on these footages that you see on Russian telegram channels, you have Russian military assets flying across Crimea, giving out countermeasures to ensure that they're not targeted. So the position of the US government when they're supplying weapons to Ukraine is Crimea is part of Ukraine. So it's fair game, which is something that I don't think the Russian establishment thought was actually going to take place. So has this gone from the uh, from Ukraine defending itself to now becoming more aggressive and taking back what is theirs or what was theirs? I mean, just like I said earlier, I don't want to jump to conclusions and prematurely say it, but after six months, it goes without saying that they do have the will, the resolve, the ingenuity, and the strategic guidance under General Zelushny to do it. There's always a question of the escalation appetite of the West and what they're willing to consider, because for the moment, a lot of the press has been focused around the delivery of HIMARS, which has really changed the battlefield situation. But Washington specifically and other NATO allies have been very careful in delivering select amount of them as opposed to a game-changing number. And there's far more equipment that both Washington and other NATO allies could be providing that would really turn this into to an offensive competition for the the Ukrainians, which would really put them on the power play to take back territory. But as I said, I think it's a, it's a question of escalation and what the West is comfortable with. Roger Hilton with us, fellow at Canadian Global Affairs Institute and defense fellow at Globsec, an international think tank based in Slovakia. Roger, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, God. Slava Ukraina. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about Ukraine and where they are uh, after six months after a Russian invasion and on this Independence Day. And are Canadians and the rest of the world still paying attention to what is going on and this heroic fight that is going on? Let's bring in arrest Zach Adelsky, senior policy analyst, Ukrainian Canadian Congress, and with us now. Arrest, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts uh, on this day, six months into this Russian invasion and on this Independence Day. What are your thoughts about Ukraine? Well, I think we're all, um, uh, you know, it's a bittersweet day. It's a, it's a day of, of immense pride for for our community and I think for, for people in Ukraine. I mean, it's been six months of a full uh, Russian invasion that, uh, you know, Thousands of Ukrainians have given their lives uh, defending their country and their freedom, uh, and they, you know, fight on and continue to to defend their country. So we will uh, stand with them and 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 do today and do every day. Um, I, I know, obviously, uh, this is more of a military question, but are you surprised that six months into this, Ukraine is still standing up and, and fighting heroically and courageously and, and has this battle where it is? Uh, no, I don't. I'm not surprised. I don't think any of us are surprised. Uh, you know, we knew that Ukraine has a has a strong army, and uh, its its army and its people are motivated. Um, and frankly, they don't have anything else to, to, that they can do other than defend their country because they've been attacked by uh, by Russia that that wants to destroy both their country and destroy the Ukrainian people. So they stand their ground. Uh, they do so. 
heroically. They do it with, you know, assistance from the West, but not, there are no, no one is fighting other than Ukrainians. So, uh, no, it's not surprising. It is, it is inspiring though. And, and, you know, we have no doubt that, that they will win. What can Canadians do? What can Canada be doing? I mean, uh, when this first started, and still has a tremendous amount of interest, but are you concerned that Canadians, others in the West, are, are just their attention is going somewhere else? Uh, so, I mean, we, we are seeing still, still, you know, a lot of people, quite an outpouring of support from Canadians, uh, both uh, uh, for charities that work in Ukraine and also to support uh, refugees and displaced persons who are coming from from Ukraine to Canada. Uh, you know, the Western governments are certainly, you know, continuing to provide uh, support. Today, Joe Biden announced the biggest package of, of military aid since the war began, over $3 billion dollars. And, and weapons and aid. So what we, I mean, what we would really like to see from Canada is uh, increased military support uh, to Ukraine and increased increased sanctions on Russia and the Russian regime. Are you seeing any decline in donations at the six month mark? Uh, I mean, through our work, we work with the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. I mean, we still people are are are, mm. are still donating, still being uh, extraordinarily generous. Um, so, you know, in in I mean, we we encourage people to obviously donate as much as they can, but we are uh, still seeing you know quite a a strong support. Uh, from Canadians for for the work of the Canada Ukraine Foundation and and other uh, many you know worthy charities uh, community charities across the country. Uh, obviously, a much more subdued uh, Independence Day than in past years. Uh, normally, celebration and such. But that being said, or asked, what about the significance of this Independence Day? Well, I mean, I think you can just look at Kyiv today. Um, there are, you know, there's obviously not uh, parties in the street, but there is a Russian parade in the middle of town, except it's not the one that they wanted. It's destroyed Russian tanks and uh, armor uh, in the middle of the city that's been put out as a symbol of Ukrainian resistance, resilience, and, uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, Ukraine, with with the assistance of, of Canada and, and the U.S. and the U.K. And, and the European Union, is going to win this war. Uh, so, I look, the significance of, of, of Independence Day, both for us here and for people in, in Ukraine, is, is one of, you know, pride, uh, sadness for all those that we've lost, uh, and also... Uh, you know, looking to to a future that will be uh, hopefully, God willing, soon peaceful. What message do you want Canadians to take away from today? Uh, well, I, I think the first is is the uh, gratitude of both our community and the Ukrainian people for all that Canada and and everyone in Canada has done, uh, and also uh, just to remember that this. This fight goes on, and we still need uh, to keep helping Ukraine. Arrest Zakaldelsky with a senior policy analyst, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, uh, talking about Ukraine as we approach the sixth month uh, of the invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And they celebrate, although albeit some, uh, somewhat subdued, their Independence Day today. Arrest, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday we were talking about Canada and Germany signing a hydrogen deal. Uh, interesting article in the National Post today about how uh, Canada may be missing the opportunity when it comes to liquid natural gas. That just does not seem to be on the Prime Minister's agenda at this point. Uh, even though Germany Germany 
is asking for it. But heck, if you're going to talk about anything, you might as well talk about the future and hydrogen and what its uh, pros and cons are and what it means uh, as far as future development in uh, where it fits into our energy mix. So let's learn more about hydrogen. Paul Martin is with us, Hydrogen Science Coalition, and with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So tell us, Paul, where hydrogen is now. Where is it in the in the research and development stage? Uh, what is the future of hydrogen? Hydrogen is a 120 million ton a year commodity chemical that's not used as a fuel or energy carrier. That's where it is. And that's where it's been for basically the past 100 years. Sorry, repeat that? So hydrogen is a chemical. It's not a fuel or an energy carrier. There are lots of people talking about using it as a fuel or energy carrier in the future. They've been talking about that since the 1980s. And at present, it's not used that way. It's used as a chemical. It's used to do things like take the sulfur out of gasoline and diesel before we burn them or to make chemicals like ammonia or um, uh, methanol or things like that. So that's what that's what hydrogen is. It's a chemical. So how long until we can use it as a fuel? What needs to go into that? Uh, Well, I guess the question is, uh, I guess there's two different questions there. One of them is, could we do it? And the other one is, should we do it? So the issue with with hydrogen right now is that people are talking about it as if it's a decarbonization solution, you know, something that's going to help us deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. But in reality... Hydrogen right now is made almost completely from natural gas and coal and uh, petroleum. So it's actually a decarbonization problem. And it's a really big decarbonization problem because one of the things that we make from it, about a third of the hydrogen that we make right now is used to make ammonia. And ammonia is really important to us. I mean, it, it is so important to us as a fertilizer and as the source of all the other fertilizers that we make, that if we don't replace it, about half the humans and their food animals on Earth will go hungry. So it's a decarbonization problem rather than a solution to uh, decarbonize much of anything. So what is your take on all of this, Paul, the, well, this deal? And, and you know, because, again, it seems we're investing in something that isn't there. Yeah, well, I guess the question is, who's the we? It, you know, the projects that are being talked about, are, the, the big one that was uh, talked about in, in uh, Stephenville, I guess, uh, it's really a project where some people in Newfoundland want to build a great big wind uh, turbine park. Uh, of, of about a gigawatt of wind turbines. So, so that's a lot. That's about the same amount of electricity that uh, if they're all running and the wind is blowing as hard as it can, uh, that would make about as much electricity as one big nuclear reactor at Darlington, for instance, uh, would make. And they want to take the output of that and feed it into uh, a, a an electrolyzer. This is a device that takes water and breaks it apart using electricity and makes hydrogen and oxygen from that water. Uh, they want to feed it to a, a unit that's about half that size. And the problem with, oh, and then they want to make hydrogen and then they, because they can't do anything with hydrogen because it's so big and hard to move around, they want to convert it into ammonia and then ship right. it to Germany. And that would be great right? Because the Germans need fertilizer just like everybody else does. And their fertilizer production is being shut down right now because natural gas that they would normally make that ammonia out of is super expensive. So if they were going to use the ammonia as fertilizer, I'd say, hey, fantastic. You know, if, if, if it's affordable, which is another question, then by all means, you know, it sounds like a great project. But of course, what are they thinking of doing with it? They're thinking about burning it to make it back into electricity again. And, you know, by the time you look at making uh, making wind electricity and then making hydrogen out of it, you lose some energy. And then you make ammonia out of it, you lose some energy. And then you put it on a boat, you ship it to Germany, you lose some energy. And then at the other end, you have to put energy in to break the ammonia back apart again to make hydrogen that you can burn or you burn it uh, in, a, in a power plant. I mean, you're lucky if you get 11% of the energy back again out the back end of that process that you put in the front end. 
And unless you're not paying for all, you know, all of that energy that you're putting in the front end, why would that be a good deal for anybody in Germany? It, it's a bit of a head scratcher. So you don't sound very bullish on hydrogen as a fuel. I, I'm not. I, you know, it really comes down to uh, it comes down to this. I mean, we have to replace all this black hydrogen in the world, which is basically the only kind of hydrogen you can buy today. Uh, hydrogen that's made from fossil fuels without any right. carbon capture. We have to replace that stuff, most of it. That we're going to keep needing it in a, in a decarbonized future. And that's the problem we have to solve. And this business of using hydrogen as a fuel, well, maybe once we've solved the problem of replacing all of the black hydrogen, maybe we can think about it. But let me give you a number that will, I think, blow your mind, because it certainly blew mine when I did the calculation. If we were going to make enough hydrogen from electricity in order to replace all of this black hydrogen that we're going to need in the future, um, you know, that we're right now making from natural gas and coal and so on, it would take all of the wind and solar that we made on the whole earth in 2019. So that's all of the wind and solar that was collected by all the wind turbines, and all the solar panels on earth in 2019. We would. Have we lost Paul? Are you still there, Paul? No, I think we've lost them. And out of time anyway. So isn't that fascinating? Paul Martin, a Hydrogen Science Coalition, uh, bullish about hydrogen, but not as a fuel. Uh, not as a fuel. So here we are, you know, we've got a problem, and our Prime Minister is yelling, look over here, look over here, look over here. Let's do this, let's do this. And none of this stuff is even proven yet. And again, research development? Absolutely, let's go. Let's let, 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 let's study this. Let's work on it. But to shut everything else off and throw this up as a news story that we're signing some big hydrogen deal that we don't even have. But we've got lots of liquid natural gas. But the prime minister isn't interested in talking about that, even though it will get dirty places like China and India and even the U.S. off of coal. Yeah, coal. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about the uh, healthcare system uh, in Canada and uh, what's been going on uh, as we come out or learn to live with a uh, global pandemic. We remember during the pandemic, uh, everybody was pretty much universal in saying that, you know, obviously some changes uh, need to be made. Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP today, coming out and chastising the prime minister, oddly enough, uh, as he is supporting the government. Uh, chastising Justin Trudeau, uh, needing, uh, calling him to step up and to meet the provinces and talk about where we go and how we move forward in finding a solution to our, our highly coveted health care system, but one that is full of flaws. We saw that during a, uh, a, a global pandemic. Uh, that being said, uh, as a result of that, yesterday, I don't know, uh, all of a sudden the feds announced that they're bringing back the chief nursing officer, uh, which will oversee, uh, this was a, a, a former position uh, that is now being brought back to oversee uh, the nursing uh, industry and, and what is going on and, and hopefully try to come up with some solutions uh, that go right the way across the country as all provinces seem to be uh, screaming about this. How is this being received and what does it mean as far as helping our healthcare system? Let's bring in Dr. Claudette Holloway, President, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I am. So your thoughts of bringing back the chief nursing officer, uh, how is this going to help us in, in, the, in the problems that we're facing in, with Canadian, uh, the Canadian health care system? Well, we're excited from RNAO to see that this position has been reinstated over 10 years. Uh, we need to have that nursing voice at the table. And uh, Dr. Lee Chapman has a varied uh, life uh, and career in nursing, in acute care, in community care, and we need to have that representation because you know that the uh, nursing uh, shortage has been in existence for some time. Uh, so we came into this pandemic 22,000 nurses short, 
And the pandemic only made it worse with with, uh, our nurses being burnt out, not able to deliver the care that they uh, want to and the care that Ontarians deserve. They're doing their best uh, with the limited resources that they have. So we're very excited um, to see this come about. Uh, obviously, these uh, problems, these issues, as you've said, that have been highlighted during a global pandemic, my goodness, our healthcare workers, we put them to, you know, through hell and back, uh, trying to get us through this this global pandemic. And, and, and I think it exposed a lot of flaws in the system that a lot of Canadians didn't realize that were there. And actually, issues that have been there for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, this is just now culminating, all coming together with a, a global pandemic um you know obviously the the position of uh chief nursing officer uh was eliminated 10 years ago but these issues even were there before that so are 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 you confident that this can actually mean change for for nursing and and the healthcare system well, it demonstrates that the federal government has respect for Canadian nurses, that they're, uh, they're, they're listening to us. And we would like to see the same thing in Ontario, where we're the only province that is dealing with Bill 124 that caps the wages of uh, nursing professionals and other health professionals at 1%, where in, you know, the um, cost of living has gone so high. So we're very confident that um, Dr. Lee Chapman has the experience to bring that voice to the table. She has the experience. She can be connected through the, um, the chief nursing office of the province, Dr. Belgi, um, who again, you know, we, are, we need our politicians to listen to us, show us the respect. Um, we need an urgent recruitment and retention strategy uh, to attract nurses back to Ontario, allow them to earn a fair wage um, and help them to stay in in the province. We don't want them leaving to to go across the border or in other provinces so they can earn uh, a reasonable living. And nurses who are choosing to take uh, that route for, say, uh, agency nursing, they're trying to get some control over their work environment. So I believe that with the voices of our chief nursing officers, we can uh, get that done and use the money that hospitals would use to try and uh, salvage, uh, you know, the challenges that they have with staffing instead of paying that to profit organizations, invest that money into healthcare. And we also hope that the federal government will uh, increase their funding to 35% to the provinces, but also make strings attached so that the premiers in the provinces will use that money um, targeted to the health human resource crisis that we're trying to address. You know, you referred to Bill 124, and many uh, in your organization will do this. We have to point out that this uh, covers not just nurses, but everybody in the public sector, and was set up... Uh, prior to the global pandemic when inflation was quite low so that raises would not be going above inflation those contracts are not coming due are you concerned that this is getting lost in the provincial battle once again as opposed to being dressed uh, addressed on the national level where all the provinces are complaining not just those in ontario uh, all the provinces are complaining that we need some sort of fix the status quo is not working anymore are you confident we can get the provinces and feds working together to actually move this forward as opposed to getting caught in the politics of it all well, I think in, in the case of Ontario, definitely we're, as far as I know, we're the only province that has a Bill 124 that is capping the wages. And yes, it's not only nurses, it's other health professionals and even physicians have joined our call to have. It's other people in the public service as well. And, it's like not just service. it's That's not right. just health care. It's everyone. That's right. And and RNO, we're we're advocating for nurses, but we fully understand that this affects other people. So we want to have um, particularly with nurses being the backbone of the healthcare system, we really need, and we can see with the closing of emergency departments and intensive cares that have to shift people to other places, we really need to address the, the nursing shortage in Ontario, not only here, but across the provinces.
Uh, you know, uh, Claudette, I'm hearing the same thing that I was hearing prior to the pandemic in the sense that, um, you know, people firing off in all different directions and not coming together to find a solution. And, and I think Canadians are, are getting growing tired of that because we want a solution to the problem. You know, we don't want to get involved in the politics or the day to day, uh, agenda of what various organizations are, whether it's teaching, whether it's uh, education, sorry, whether it's it's healthcare or what have you. And again, I'll come back to this question. Are you confident that all of these organizations can put their own personal interests aside and actually come up with a solution here? The status quo is not working. And even what you're suggesting, Claudette, is just, again, more Band-Aid solutions. I mean, are we going to find something different here? Well, um, I cannot speak for the other professions, but certainly uh, RNO is willing to sit at the table with the Minister of Health here in Ontario, work with our um, Chief Nursing Officer of Canada to address. And we are not here um, for ourselves. We're here for, for nursing as a profession and for um, the, the health care that Canadians receive. So I, I, I would like to make that clear. But I understand that other um, professions also have the challenges and, you know, we will certainly contribute whatever we can from RNAO to deal with the health. We're, we're specializing in health, health, uh, public health policy, healthy public policy. So um, we're certainly, we've already put some solutions in place. We know that we have nurses who are um, interested, interested in moving from, say, registered nurse to nurse practitioners. We need funding from the Ontario government to do that. And if the uh, federal can assist with that, that is even better. We know that enrollment for schools, uh, for nursing, that is increased. Uh, 35%, I believe it's gone up. So there is an interest in the profession. And even though we've heard, you know, the challenges, people are still interested because nurses care. And we have nurses who are retired, um, registered nurses, clinical nurse specialists, um, nurse practitioners who with incentives could be drawn back into the workplace to uh, help mentor the internationally educated nurses, over 22,000 who are in the province um, and 14,000 who are registered nurses willing to come alongside. So RNAO has already put these solutions forward. Um, we're willing to, you know, sit down and have that conversation support in any way we can. But altogether, we need to look at health care for Ontarians and healthcare, we know that it's not just hospitals. We know that hospitals have taken the biggest brunt, but we realize that there's healthcare needed in in the community, public health also. Dr. Claudette Holloway with us, President, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, talking about tackling the healthcare issues and the addition of the Chief Nursing Officer. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Wanted to kind of add some clarity to Bill 124, which, you know, um, we're hearing a lot, especially with the nurses. And, you know, let me preface this by saying, my goodness, the healthcare workers need all of our support. We obviously have to rejig this system. We obviously have to make sure that we're taking care of these people that work so hard to take care of us. But Bill 124 enacts the protesting or sorry, protecting a sustainable public sector for future generations act 2019. So this was done before the pandemic when inflation was quite low. The proposed of the Act, the purpose of the Act is to ensure that increases in public sector compensation, so that's not just nurses, that's everybody, in the public sector reflect the fiscal situation of the province and are consistent with the principles and responsible fiscal management and protect the sustainable sustainability of public services. Salary increases are limited to 1% for each 12-month period during, this, uh, during these contracts. So again, it doesn't just affect nurses, it affects all public sector employees and these deals are all coming to an end this was done in 2019 when inflation was still below or at one percent and people were getting raises above inflation so that's the whole idea behind it now obviously during a pandemic and in the last six months everything's changed and contracts are coming up and being renegotiated. But when we have organizations on, like the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and talk about solving and solutions to uh, the Canadian healthcare system, and all we hear about is you got to get rid of Bill 124, uh, you got to bring back retired nurses to help mentor younger ones, excuse me, that just pads the unions. 
that just brings back more paying memberships and increases the amount of money they bring in. So can we please put the personal agendas aside and just get to fixing our healthcare system? And that includes adequate compensation for those that are in the industry. But instead, we got, you know, we got to get rid of it. It becomes political attacks on the government of the day. And this has been going on for decades. Yet here we are screaming and yelling uh, two and a half years after a pandemic and, 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 and looking to the same silly Band-Aids to solve the problem instead of the provinces and the feds getting together and, and, and jawing this out and figuring and finding out a solution. We can't go backwards on this. Status quo, not acceptable. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, hope you're doing well. Doing okay, Scott. How are you? I'm good. I'm just getting frustrated when, and we're starting to see this a little bit with the education industry as well. I think, (laughs) you know, I I really think in a post-pandemic world, we're tired of this. We we've identified problems, we've pointed out what those issues are, and now we've got to find solutions. And instead, we're you know, uh, look over here. What about me? What are your thoughts? I don't think it's a post-pandemic world. I think we were frankly. I think every single person was tired of the province and teachers and educators fighting with every single government. I think that was, we're long tired of that. Um, and I think an awful lot of people, whether it's post-pandemic or not, are saying, yeah, you know what, we have huge inflation and not everybody works in the public sector. Why should the public sector be treated vastly different from all the rest of the people in the private sector who aren't getting 8% raises or 7% raises and who will end up paying the freight for the people in the public sector who are going to, if they, if they do it, would get these raises. And look, this, is, this, is, this goes back to the pandemic and the public sector when we were talking about, you know, we're all in this together. All right, we're all in this together. How many times did we hear that catchphrase, we're all in this together? And then you had people in the private sector being laid off and losing their businesses and losing their hours and having pay cut, and not a single public sector person or politician took a pay cut or was laid off. And I don't want people laid off, but there was no recognition that the people who are working in the private sector also are feeling this, and they will end up paying these higher taxes to pay this. I don't want people suffering. I don't want their pay falling behind, but I think that we're... We lose a sense of realism here that, that you know, like my, my daughter is a nurse. My mom was a nurse. I have tons of people around who are nurses. I don't want them poorly paid. I don't want teachers poorly paid. But many of them are already being paid considerably more than a lot of people in the private sector who will end up paying the carrying the ball here and paying a lot of the taxes. It's. It's not as easy as just saying, well, inflation is 8%, therefore we've got to have a big raise. It's, it's way more complicated than that because lots of other people are affected by this. It's not the imaginary government money tree. I love listening to the same old arguments you think we would have learned after two and a half years. Uh, Scott Radley with us coming up on the Scott Radley Show right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Liz for producing. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, my name is Richard. In Canada, we have massive stores of natural resources. We don't regularly make hydrogen. But Tweedledee on Parliament Hill doesn't choose what we have to save us? What the hell is this? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.